Cause I wanna move closer, but I don't control it. I know I've been trying doors and open. I know it sounds funny, but really though, in the beginning we really close. Now we just cruising up on the coast. Hello and welcome to the Schmuel Tenin House podcast. I hope you appreciated that musical open uh, before me that was Reb Nissen Black, who actually joins me on this very episode for an interview, so please stay tuned. And uh, now we just have a couple of household items, literally, that we have to get through. So first of all, I have spoken about this in the past, which is what my Shmuel Tenenhaus, the Shmuel Tenenhaus podcast, what my love language is. Let's see if everybody has a good memory, but... Hopefully this will jog it, the memory that is. And so my spouse told me this week that she remembered to cancel a subscription before the free trial concluded. That, ladies and gentlemen, is my love language. If you tell me that you canceled a subscription before the free trial was over and you shared that with me, uh... This is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go down on one knee and propose to you. Luckily, it was my wife, so I got to repropose to her. Fortunately, it wasn't a dove, another woman because that would have been a very complicated situation. But to me, those words are music to, the ear, to my ears. If somebody could just sometimes just call me up or wake me up middle of the night and just say, Hey, Shmuel, I just wanted to let you know, we canceled the subscription before the free trial was over. That will just make me a much happier person. And I'm already a really happy person. This will just bring it a couple notches higher. The next thing I want to talk about is about challah baking. I have this idea to do with my guy friends, but this could be done with uh, females uh, or people who are uh, non-binary. So this is not necessarily something that is gender specific. This could be more a gender-neutral idea, and the concept is as follows. So what happens is you wake up early in the morning. And by the way, this has to be done with kids. If you have to be over 21 or have a prescription to do this, let me just call that out. So you wake up early in the morning. It could be Thursday morning, Friday morning. I think Friday morning is a better idea. And then you smoke a little bit of reefer and then proceed to bake challah for Shabbos. Because what we have here right now in this scenario is we have a wake, bake, and bake. A wake, bake, and bake. And if you're a shliach on campus going, that is just a brilliant concept. I want to move forward with it. I hereby grant you as much permission as you need from somebody to take it and roll with it. Get it? I said roll with it. Yeah. Okay. So another thing that uh, is a benefit to me as a married man, and I'm curious if anybody out there, husbands or wives, have ever experienced a similar situation. Sometimes I'm talking on the phone, and my wife will need me for something. And I'm physically present, and she is physically present. So as I'm on the phone, my wife will ask me the following question. Are you on the phone? 
And of course, I'll always look at her and say, of course I'm not on the phone. What made you think that I was on the phone? The fact that I'm holding the phone up to my ear and I've been talking to somebody about specific things for the last five, 10 minutes and he's responding and I'm responding? No, I'm not on the phone. Please, woman. I'm just casually smelling my armpit, but I don't want people to know because I'll look like a fool. So what I do is I pretend to be on the phone, hold the phone up. Really what I'm doing is getting a good whiff of what's going on under my arms and it all works out and I have to have a fake conversation. So to answer your question, am I on the phone? Of course I'm not on the phone. It just looks like I'm on the phone. What can I do right now? to assist you. I'm wondering how you would respond to such a question if you were on the phone and then your spouse who can see says, hey, are you on the phone? Okay. Another thing is, uh, and this is a conversation that is highly recommended in my head and by other experts who I have never encountered and never will, and that is conversations between from, com- from couples, and that is, what if? Like, what if we both mutually agreed that this whole religion thing is not for us? Like, I've talked about this. You can get a notice in the mail. Hell, hey, you've been part of a massive scheme that's going on for thousands of years, or something else could happen that can trigger you not wanting to be part of the religion. So everybody like kind of has this idea in the head. The idea is to make a formal plan with your spouse so you just don't go running around to every tray for restaurant. You're going to blow out all your money. So you need to have some sort of, you know, leaving the fold plan. So you also have to start with understanding what would be the first thing that you would do. What would you try now that you're not from? I don't have a very long list. So my list is I would immediately go to Baskin-Robbins or a different uh, ice cream store and engorge myself with dairy ice cream just for about a week and then come crawling back to Yiddishkeit as we know it because I need rules in place to make sure that I stay, you know, close to the edge of where I am right now. Now, I wanted to share a very important story on the topic of Chal Yisrael, which I keep uh, with joy, by the way. And so I spoke to a friend of mine who is a card-carrying Chabad guy. Now, there's been times where he worked in a remote place and his body was literally hungry. And so what he had to do is he had to muster the energy to walk into a, you know, a, would say, an establishment that serves ice cream that doesn't have a Chav Yisrael hashkacha. Now, this happened on more than one occasion. And again, he was in a very remote place. There was nothing else for him to eat. He literally, this was almost a life and death situation. And so what he reported back to me and this was something he volunteered. I didn't really press him for details. He told me like this. The difference between Chol Yisrael ice cream 
and non-chal of Yisrael ice cream, let's say chal of Stam, that delta is greater than the difference between par of ice cream and chal of Yisrael ice cream. One more time. I, I, we gotta, I, if I had a whiteboard here, it would be much easier, and maybe we'll include it in a future session. Again, he told me that the difference between Chol Yisrael and non-Chol Yisrael ice cream, the contrast was even greater than the contrast between what we have as par of ice cream and Chol Yisrael ice cream. To me, that is a huge statement, and it's something I reflect on all the time. Is it, is it the reason why this is the number one thing that I would do if I would want to be ice from for a couple of days or hours? I think I would have come to the same conclusion already. It's just, I think this just reinforced it. So if I can give anybody advice, this is not a conversation to be afraid of. You can have a methodical conversation about it. You get your list down, what he wants to do, what she wants to do, what she wants to do, what she wants to do, what he wants to do, what he wants to do. You put it down together. And that way, if you do, uh, like we say, exit the fold, you'd want to do it very Masudr-like. You don't have to use the word Masudr now because you're gone. You're gone with the wind. But it's important to kind of know what's uh, going to happen. Now, another thing I want to share is sometimes my wife will find me with my nose buried in a safer. And uh, usually it's times uh, when a lot of help is required around the house. And I will be sitting on the couch. And again, my I'm face planted in a holy book. Now, my wife is starting to suspect that some of the shirim that I do are just fake stuff to get out of my household obligations. She's like, half the stuff you do, are, are they even real? Or is this just stuff to keep from men out of jail or out of getting in trouble? Well, first of all, it could be both. I don't know why they have to be mutually exclusive. It's possible that it is to prevent us from committing crimes, to keep us homebound. And also, there is truth to it. So for example, I try to tell my wife, Hey, this thing that I do on Friday, doing Sheva Mikrav Echatargum, saying the Chumash seven times and saying, uh, you know, the Chumash, sorry, the Chumash seven times, the Targum one time, to do it now sitting on the couch and also having my phone with me uh, for an hour afterwards, just checking on the local news. That is a real thing. Just ask anybody who knows. Sheva Mikrav Echatargum. Why would I make something up like that? It's, it's, it's just fact. Uh, now, before, right before we get to the interview, first of all, I had a brilliant time talking to Nissen Black. Uh, I could have definitely talked for a much longer amount of time, and maybe we'll do so in the future. Uh, very insight, insightful and uh, very able person. That was my impression. Uh, so anyways, before I hand it off to myself, because I was the one who conducted the interview, uh, I want to say that there is a new litmus within the Frum community in terms of wealth. What is a real statement of wealth? It's no longer the Pesach program. It's not a Tesla. 
It's not just going on vacations and pretending that you're using points and telling everybody that you're using points. That's not, that's not what it is. The testament to wealth, true wealth in the Jewish community, is the length of your dining room table. If you have an eight-foot table, you are kind of middle of the pack. You can have a couple people on the sides, people on the edges, but when you're talking big money, either generational wealth or money that people fell into, you have to have at least a 15-foot table. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, there's a regular table, a dining room table, and then we associate that dining room table with a folding table that we have procured from Costco. And I say, no, that is not true Yiddish generational guilt. You need to have one long table. They have to have shipped that to you on a long ship. I know from people who have purchased neighboring homes, not that they needed more bedrooms. They just needed more space for that long dining room table. Now, if you have a dining room table and you're adding on slabs of wood to keep it going, I would say, eh, maybe that's newfound wealth because you continue adding to it. True generational guilt and wealth is the longest possible Shabbos table that you have to be on one end and you cannot see the other end of the table. You literally, if somebody asks to pass something, you have to put it on a conveyor belt and it'll make it to you. That's true generational wealth. Okay, welcome to the Shmuel Tenenhaus podcast. I am here with a very esteemed guest uh, from one of my hometowns, Seattle, Washington. Uh, I would like to introduce Reb Nissen Black. Hey, how you doing? How you doing? Thank you so much, Shmuel. Singer and artist. Nice <laughs> to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to, happy to be found. <laughs> okay. And like I was telling you when we were chatting before, uh, mm-hmm. one of the main inspirations for reaching out and doing this interview for my podcast is we listen to all, all sorts of songs in carpool. So whenever we have uh, anything that doesn't involve cursing, it's a, it's a big treat for us in the carpool. And uh, your songs are one of those uh, uh, non-cursing related genre. So <laughs> that's always Thank a good you. thing to have in a from carpool. Thank you. Thank you so much. Happy, happy to be in it. Thank you, sir. Um, so first of all, uh, so I have a bunch of questions. Uh, would love to run through them with you. Uh, I know you sing now. Were you singing when you were younger before you had, I know you had a long transformation uh, and I've heard uh, your amazing story. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I started, you know, I mean, you know, what, what do you call starting? So first, my, my mother, my my father were both rappers. So I have hijos. So I, I started actually as you're a rapper, Ben rapper. Yeah, exactly. I'm a rapper, Ben rapper. Uh, uh, and I, you know, I, I think the first seven, eight years of my life, um, I thought I was Michael Jackson. And uh, thank God I wasn't hanging around Michael Jackson at that age, but I for sure thought I was him. I used to go to sleep with a dirty white glove. I had moonwalk. So I was always performing, singing, rapping, dancing um, as far back. You know, my grandmother, she used to joke and say I used to do the moonwalk with with a dirty diaper, you know. Um, nice. So I was very always into music. It was never a time like where music was like just a thing. It was always the thing. 
Um, so when I was 13, I recorded my first professional song with a pretty big producer in Seattle. His name was Vitamin D. And I started working with Bean One, Jake One, other producers uh, that became, you know, even more known. And um, and so my my professional career of music started at 13 years old. And by the time I was 15, the first release is when I first got my first national press and re- recognition. Sounds cool. Uh, where in Seattle did you grow up? Like which neighborhood? I grew up the longest stint of my life was in Sewer Park neighborhood. That's where I grew up in the in the near the Jewish area there. Okay, South excellent. Seattle. Were you at all affiliated with the Jewish community before uh, you converted? Not at all, actually. I used to I used to drive my back my bike. I'm sorry. I used to drive my bike in the back of the in the back parking lot of the Sephardic Shul, which ironically I would later on convert in many years later. Um, and I used to walk through uh, Bikr Cholim, um, the uh, Ashkenazi shul, um, Bikr Cholim. I used to walk through there to go to Graham Hill Elementary, which was right across the way uh, where I went to school. But um, apart from that, I didn't have any association. You know, I'd ride my bike through people as they're walking on their way up to shul and whatever. But I didn't have um, so much of a relationship. And and what's ironic also too, like I never, I wasn't raised anti-Semitic neither, so I never really heard any bad, like derogatory things about Jews, like until I was like learning to become one. Gotcha. Um, And we were, we were just talking before that uh, a mutual friend of ours did like an out outdoor concert at some point in time in Seattle. So I had the opportunity to see it perform then. Um, I don't know if they're still doing it, but I know that friend of ours has moved to Israel. Yes. uh, Yes. Yes. So excited that he's here. So happy. Okay. Um, so, uh, so I have some questions also from my from my kids. So just uh, mm-hmm. bear with me. They're very curious. Okay. Um, so uh, this is my son. He's a Talmudist. So uh, what was your stage name before, you know, before you were doing Jewish music? Because he's curious if he can find you on Spotify. <laughs> well, you know, if 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 you wanted that your kids were listening to music without curse words, I would not recommend him going to look me up uh, before. Okay, that's- Okay, that's good. Uh, But, you know, I have one, you know, my last album under the name D Black. My name was originally Damien. So my street name was D Black because my last name was always Black. Um, That's not a stage name, by the way. A lot of people ask me that as a stage name. Yeah. So the last name, a family name is actually uh, technically should have been Kroon. My father, my father's name is actually Kroon, but my mother named me after her father. She gave me her maiden name. Um, So. Black, uh, D Black was the name, and uh, I I don't recommend going to go look up those those records. But you know, you, you know, you know, yeah. you know, any any from kid, you're gonna tell them not to do something. You know what they're gonna do, right? Exactly, exactly, exactly. I don't know. Tell them my old like uh, street name was like Wilt Smith or something, and then yeah, at least he'll listen to rap with no curse words. <laughs> I don't know what to tell him. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you can tell him if you don't want him to listen to it, you can tell him his Rebbe listens to it and then he he won't be uh, into the whole thing anymore. <laughs> OK, next question. Um, out of curiosity, what music do you listen to? Wow. Which uh, Jewish uh, hip hip hop artists are you into these days? <laughs> I don't. I you know what I, I I think I make enough hip hop for me to listen to. I'm really more so into um into like the exact like the polar opposite. Like I'm a big Yisharibo fan, Akiva Turgerman. I love Zusha. I'm big big Zusha fan. 
Um, I really like very melodic. I mean, because I'm at the place, I'm at a place I would say in my life where I'm not really a, a consumer of music. I'm not so much of a listener anymore. I use music. So any music that really gets me in the mode of like his bodiness and stuff, I've had messages, a lot of messages from people tell me like my music takes them there. And that's that's Gavaldic, but I I I I lean on, you know, you know, the Yosef Cardunas, the Shlomo Cats, you know. Um, I really like it very and even by them, I like only like the chill songs. Very, very chill. Anything that starts moving too much, I don't like. I don't know why. When I go into the studio, it just comes out the opposite. But uh that's that's the music I like. It's fascinating. Any um, interesting collaborations that you're working on? I know uh, you've done, you've done a, you know, you've done some God Elba st- stuff in the past, Hashem Elach, Hashem Elach, but uh, right. any other uh, uh, right. collaborations yeah, I mean, you're working on now that are top secret that you can just tell me? <laughs> top secret? It won't be a secret after I say it, I guess. Uh, so interestingly enough, me and Yishai have a couple songs that we are oh, going back on. So I'm very excited about that. Uh, me and Zusha have been working on a song for like a long, I wouldn't say we've been working on it. Like we both like recorded it already, but we're just doing a lot of production stuff on it. And in between our busy schedules, we have a head time to go back and forth on it. But um, those would be the two um, that I could think of off the top of the head that I'm I'm excited to, excited to finish up. Yeah. I love, uh, by the way, in general, my dad, who is a shliach here, he did a, concert here for Hanukkah, Ishe Rebo was 7,000 people. So next time you got to come along with him. Oh. Uh, I was here in South Florida for Hanukkah time. And oh, wow. uh, I just thought I'd put that out there just because I have Yichos too. I'm not the son of a rapper, but my dad put on a big uh, Ishe Rebo show. <laughs> it's big stuff. So, it's big stuff. Absolutely. I, yeah, I, we talking- you know, we flew back Hanukkah, me and Yishai. So I, I heard about the show because I we flew back. Uh, we both were flying Allah and we sat not too far from each other. So and a yeah. nice little bit of time talking about it. So nice. Yeah, it was beautiful. Yeah. Next time, uh, come on down. Um, so uh, we were saying we both know God Elbaz. He's got, he got married. Um, in general, uh, I do. I am a big God fan. I do. I do have a small issue with him. I, I feel he has a, a God complex, but that he can't do anything. <laughs> he can't do anything about that. Um, another question. Why do we not see any Jewish rap battles? What is going on with that? <laughs> because, you know, like I always say, you know, uh, it's very interesting. You know, I tell my story a lot. And, I, and when I refer to a rap battle, it essentially is, you know, two guys, you know, spewing lush and horror at each other. You know what I'm saying? I just don't know if the Khalifat's time would be into into rap battles, like what what like what type of maneuvering around halacha we'd have to do to be able to make it kosher, you know? Uh, and, and plus, you know, these things are all men and have egos and stuff like that. That would be horrible. Um, <laughs> for, for, at least for from Jews, I don't think, I don't think it's a thing. Um, me personally, I just, I, I, I fell out of the, um, I mean, I guess if I'm being honest, I guess I would say I kind of fell out of the rap sport type of thing. Like, you know, one of the things that I guess I've been a little bit more vocal about over the last year. So I was like my most rappiest song probably is Motherland Bounce. And I hate that song. Like but it became a hit, you know, for by so many people, I mean, people that are not Jewish. Right. And I, I still play it and whatever. But like I, if you ask me my least favorite song, I would probably say that song. Um, and it was even that's before. great. That's my next my next question is about that song. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting that mm-hmm. you don't like in general, you don't like consuming as much hip hop. And the song no. that you hate, 
or you like the least ends up becoming the hit. And so right, right, definitely right. Something, a lot to unpack there. Um, the, the truth is because it is a powerful tool. I understand how big, you know, hip hop is and, 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 and how, how influential it is in the world, you know, um, it just, it's just, as I've been able to grow, you know, you, you know, like for instance, I grew up my whole life, you know, almost feeling like I, I had to pretend to be like everybody else in my environment, you know, but inside I, I was always a very spiritual kid, deep kid, like wanting more. I didn't want to live the type of life that, that, that I was exposed to growing up. And, you know, it was, I, I as much as I was trying to hide it behind all these different illusions, many people in my family have told me now, like looking back, like you were always different. Um, but I, I, I myself, you know, even musically and creatively, you know, I had to lie. I, I mean, I didn't lie, but I had to hide that I like Rascal Flats. You know what I'm saying? Or, you know what I'm saying? Or, or the Black Keys. It's, it's stuff that wasn't just like regular hip hop. And the more and more that I've grown, I guess, you know, I'm coming into myself even even more more after, you know, being in my 30s, like, and just realizing like musically, I've always wanted to challenge myself and to step out of the, the box of hip hop. But it was just, you sort of raised and you're indoctrinated in a certain way. So you feel like you can only do this or, you know, you have in your mind, I'm, a, I'm, I'm this type or I'm that type, I'm this type. So I just been sort of breaking stereotypes of the types, you know? And yeah. so musically, it's not that I'm against hip hop, God forbid. I just, uh, yeah, I think that it's it's a tool, you know. Avraham Benarav uh, Benarav Nachman Nachman Tulchin, who was the student of of Reb Nassin, who was the main student of Rabbi Nachman, he says something in the Sefer Kogve Or that says that before he was talking about the 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 air balloon, he said that you know in the future you'll be able to see that people are able to make it to wherever they want to be by the air. The air will be able to, you know, he was referring to an airplane. But he says, just like with this and any new invention that's created, he says the sole purpose of why Hashem allowed for it to be brought into the world was for the sake of Kedusha. But the cloud is, the 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 rule is that it goes to the Klippas first. So I think hip hop was brought just for the sake of Kedusha. The problem is that the Klippas gets it first. And with every other genre and with the internet and with phones and with everything, it also the same thing. It just goes to the Klippas first. But the whole reason is when we are able to do something be Kedusha, then we're able to, to use it for its intended purpose. So I, I wouldn't say hip hop is outside of that just because of the way that it started. Completely. Um, so I have another, this one is a really uh, personal question, but uh and feel free to pass. Uh, I talk about food, kosher food. I don't food pass all the time. on personal questions. I get okay. personal. <laughs> so uh, there's a big debate on this podcast, and I I have my my personal preferences, and that is when we talk about tchina or hummus. I am on team tchina. I I think that hummus is <laughs> so overrated, and it became like a staple in every American gas station. Personally, I'm like <laughs> I'm on team team tchina, so I wanted to get your perspective <laughs> and for me it's really no brainer i'm on the hummus side you know it's not what? really <laughs> so it's so good. like listen is so creamy i know but you know what it's 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 surprisingly good like you know tahina like 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 if you ask me if i like it i'll tell you no but like if it accidentally ended up on my food like i'll eat it and i'll be like man this is really good you know and it happens to me all the time with tahina. it's a creeper it, it is. is it's like it's a creeper that. for me. For me, it's not like uh, it's not my go to. I, I'll probably never grab it on purpose. 
but you know okay. it has like ended up somebody else has made my plate and this ended up on there and, I, and i'll eat it i don't know why i just can't bring myself to be like you know yes this i enjoy you know but uh so if you ask okay. me hummus i don't have that problem i know it's very good and and uh even that i'm indoctrinated because it's it what's 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 honestly um not true it's not easy to make a good hummus it's not easy I, it's really not easy and so say many have tried but they haven't succeeded they, but they have not 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 succeeded and years ago in seattle shout out to i think it was david babani and, and zach grash and they had a they had they were like making homemade hummus they called oh. it the garbanzo brothers or something you know i i, I got garbanzo brothers not only that do you know the garbanzo had a green <laughs> version a cannabis really? friendly yes. Wow. A friendly version. Yes. Uh wow. I don't understand what happened to them, but that was very good. Their garbage. That garbage. was good stuff. That was good stuff. I still I hear it is. I'm 10 years later, I'm still thinking about it. But yeah. Wow. It's good stuff. Um, I want to be uh, conscious of your time. I'll just rip through the rest of my questions, okay? Okay. Um, in Motherland Bounce, which is your least favorite song of your least favorite <laughs> genre, uh, you you refer to yourself as Hitler's worst nightmare. So I'm right. curious, did you ever think about using that as a stage name? It's a little controversial, but you go back <laughs> to Happy Punch. You know, when I had a podcast, I would open up with, you know, some of the titles that I used in Motherland Bounce, and that was one of them. Uh, I never thought of it as a stage name. <laughs> okay. Um, next question. How many shows per year? I saw, like, on Instagram at some point in time, a poster. There were a lot of shows coming up. So how many do you, on average, or what's the range? Ooh. I don't know. I think I'm well over six, 70 shows a year. I mean, I had, I calculated less. Well, I didn't, I can't say I calculated. I was only able to get a few because, because the way that the spreadsheet was and I was going through stuff with my accountant, but I know I was, I was out of Israel on tour for well over 83 days. So wow, that's year. amazing. Yeah. So and obviously it's, sometimes, it's a podcast. Lots of curious people. So I don't want to ask you point blank about how much money you make, but if you can send over <laughs> your W-2 or your tax return, some guys are so curious in this and they want to know. <laughs> so just do it. And then I could just say anybody with a question, he's going to ship it to them directly. I'm just joking. <laughs> um, so uh, another question is- We're getting out, uh, of the, getting out of the corona debt. <laughs> exactly. Um, another question is- um, you converted, right? And you went through this journey along with your spouse. Mm -hmm. I cannot get on the same page with my wife just about what's for dinner tonight or what are we doing <laughs> with the kids tomorrow. How did you how did you navigate such yeah. an you know, long journey? And like, do you have any suggestions or tips on, on marital <laughs> advice? Because this is a, a real Yeah, I always I say up. if she if she'll marry you twice, she's for sure a keeper. Um, so the truth is, is that I had to result to prayer. I, you know, I had to book the garden of peace. That was really what helped me out. And, and my disclaimer for that book is, is the same disclaimer. I think that Rabbi Arush gives in it. If, if you will do the prayer part, which I actually did, I was going out every day, talking to Hashem for an hour or way more than that. And many occasions only on my marriage and that me and my wife be on the same because in the beginning we were not. And the prayers, the prayers were so powerful. You know, you're talking 14, 15 years ago that she's still frumer than me. I don't know what I did, but uh, 
but a lot of it was 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 just the feeling, you know. No, a lot of the things that are in that book, they're so powerful. No comments, not to criticize, to honor your wife, and to make a first place. These things, I lived with that book. Like literally, I lived with the book. I read it like seven or eight times. And it's not the book, the information in the book. Rabbi always says, too. Most of the guys I've seen that had objections, I ask them, and my brother-in-law's done the same thing. Did you do the prayers? They said no. Rabbi always says this: this the books is no good for you if you're not doing the prayers that the feel is the biggest part i'm just giving you what to pray for and so that has been the biggest thing for me and uh, my wife really is the asian sky not only that we, not only did we the journey we've been together since we were 16 i met my wife i was 16 years old yeah and we started dating on 17 we never broke up we haven't had a single breakup you know since we were 16 years old i'm not going to tell you how old uh, not even not even a fight yeah. dude I'm I ain't gonna say a fight, you know. What I'm, <laughs> I'm just joking. I'm kidding. Obviously, I'm kidding. obviously, I don't, I don't win those so well, but uh, you know. <laughs> okay, amazing. Two last, uh, two quick last questions. You're active on social, I imagine, just for work. How do you manage to stay sane and be, uh, you know, active on social media? Because again, it's it's a part of your your work. Right. It's something I definitely find challenging in my own in my own life. So the biggest thing is I, you know, I would, I would love to lie and say like I have, but the, here's the first, first step is this, is you get a phone that's kosher that you can't have social media on. That's Devarachat. You don't have a phone. If you have, can you have phone, if you have kosher media on your phone, I think it's very, very dangerous. And I don't have, I can't even, I can't even do a Google search. Um, but um but I can unfortunately still get like grocery lists for my wife when I'm in the store after checkout and there's 10 more items I need to get. Anyway, apart from that, uh, I think the biggest, the biggest thing is, is, is being using social media to be mashpia and not to be macabre from it. And we're not taking from the social media. Um, I have a team of people that, that run my social media for me. I, I think that, I'm not saying that it. Uh, I'm not saying it's a real club, but I think that it affects women a little bit different than it does men. So, um, definitely have a team of people who who help me with my uh, social media, and that way I don't have to be on it. And uh, and if there's something that's very very important or a message or something that I need to get from them, then they'll direct me to it, and then I'll check it out. But other than that, I think that uh, it's it's overrated how much people think like, oh, I have to be on it for my business. Do you have to have it in today's day? Yes. Am I against it? No, I'm not against it. I just think that uh, you have to be mashpia and not be makabu. Yep. Um, last question. Uh, you had just mentioned about, we were talking about the, the Jewish community in Seattle and you growing up there and anti-Semitism. What are, what are I, I see so much overlap between black community and Jewish community. Mm -hmm. uh, so much emphasis on family. I mean, amongst many other things. Mm -hmm. What are ways or that that could be worked on or some suggestions in terms of bringing the communities closer? I know, again, rap battles are probably out of the questions because we, would, <laughs> we wouldn't stand a chat. We would lose very badly. We only have you and a couple of Chaimoji. I mean, we wouldn't be right. able to. But it's something I think about all the time. And I, I, you, I'm sure you have a very unique um worldview on this that, that yeah. most can't bring to the table. You know what I think, honestly, because um, this has been coming up a lot, especially like since over the last couple of years, but I'm just saying recently, and one of the biggest things I've been thinking about is like, um, 
you know, you start within to go out, basically. So, like, there are there are a lot of people who have a very good heart and they, and they're seeing like the plight and what's going on in African-American communities. And they're seeing, you know, struggle and they're, 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 you know, for lack of a better term, they're woke to it, but I, you know, they, they, they see that there's, there's, there's differences and, and that there may be conflict going on also too with the communities that may be exposed in this more. But one thing that I, that I think is, is, is something that gets overlooked is that there are so many Jews of color, you know, that are going through stuff in the community. Like, like before we start looking at what's going on in the outside community, let's look at like what's going on inside the community. You know, we have so many issues going on inside the Froom world and inside our world with the Jews that don't look like us that that I think that that would be the first start before we start going out to build bridges with the rest of the community. We we have to give people a place of comfort, you know, especially people like us who are Garen. Thank God, Bokushim, that I, you know, I ended up in Seattle where they were very loving. And then, you know, by the time I did move to a bigger community, I was already a household name. I don't know how everybody would have treated me in some of the circles if I wasn't already a name in the Jewish world, to be honest. When I talk to other people, some people never experienced things, but the rove of people, most of them have gone through a lot of things. And can you imagine how hard it is to leave everything that you know to come to, to the people that like the people of the books, so we read the book. This is God's nation, God's people. And then to also feel dejected and to try to hold strong and not feel that Hashem also doesn't like you. You understand? So people are going through so much. And I think that the first place to start is within the community, the books that have, you know, example books when it comes to Goy, it's always a black family. Why? Because now these, the kids growing up, they're saying to me, you know, like me, I was in the store, Tati, why is that Goy dressed like a Jew? Why is the Goy dressed like a Jew? But when they look in the books, all the Yiddish books, and I've already seen like three or four of them, by the way, I'm not just saying this. So always the example of the Goy is the black person. So when do we get the, you know, the, 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 uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, the benches from, because uh, I just, if we're making it fair, the Waxburger, they should also do uh, uh, Haggadahs with, with black people leaving from, because nobody looked like they came from Meisharim even when they left out of Mitzrayim. So, you know, if we're just keeping it fair. So I just think that these type of things are very, very important to, to, to build within the community first with the different colors and then to go outside. Got it. Okay. Like charity starts at home. Um, it always starts at home. So exactly. interesting that you mentioned some of the challenges within the from, from community. I was mm -hmm. of the opinion that the from community was perfect and there was uh, no challenges whatsoever. <laughs> so just to hear this has come as a total shock uh, that we got issues. <laughs> we all think that at some point. <laughs> Resolve, but uh, I really Okay. Thank you, sir, so much. Thank Let me just you. pause Thank the recording, you. okay? Okay, no problem.